0: This morning's reading before our sermon, it comes from the book of Jude. So if you could turn there, I'll be reading the entire chapter. Starting in verse 1, the word of God reads, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. beloved." While I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which is once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare to pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand. And the things which they know by instinct. Like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds autumn trees without fruit doubly dead uprooted wild ways of the sea casting up their own shame like foam wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever it was also about these men that enoch in the seventh generation from adam prophesied saying behold the lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever, amen.
1: Morning, Pacific Hope Church. To be candid with you all, it's been a week full of distractions in finding time to be immersed in God's word and to prepare the preaching for this morning. It also goes without saying that there would be a temptation to be distracted in delivering God's word and also for you at home listening to God's word. And for that reason, we'll, we'll ask for the, the Holy Spirit to guide and direct our time of study this morning. To be honest, there's a part of me that says perhaps we should turn off the live stream and and go to the Lord in in prayer, but the Holy Spirit has impressed on my heart time and time again that the preaching of his word is for just a time as this. This time where our situation is ever changing, we need timely exposure with God's word, which is never changing. I'm further reminded that as as our pastor faithfully reminds us of the need to preach the gospel in season and out of season. Those are not uh, Pastor John's instructions, nor are they Paul's instructions, but those are the instructions of Jesus Christ. So that's what we'll do. We'll draw ourselves into community, into contact with our holy God and his eternal word this morning. So I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate this time of study as we begin four weeks of examining Paul's letter to Titus. Father God, we, we do come before you and we confess that our, our hearts and our minds are often uh, wayward. We're often prone to um, have worry, frustration, anxiety, other things on our mind, Lord God. But your word is sufficient. Your word is unchanging. Your word prepares us to go through um, storms just like the one that we're in. And we praise you for that. Father God, I ask for a measure of your spirit this morning as we prepare to study Paul's letter to Titus, that it would, in fact, be ministering to each of us as we play a role in this intricately designed body of Christ that you've designed. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you would, please, open your Bibles. I also encourage you to have a notepad on hand. Today, we'll be embarking upon this study. There are three chapters in the book of Titus, and we'll be studying this for four weeks. Today, we have the ambitious goal of getting through the first five verses. And if that doesn't seem underwhelming enough, it's worth mentioning that in Greek, the first four verses constitute only one verse. So if we look at it that way, we're going to cover two verses this morning. Also, so that you you don't despair, um, this particular text is going to be an intro to the intro. This is a, a letter that Paul wrote to Titus. It's one of 13 letters. If you're following along on an iPad this morning, you might find this as an epistle as opposed to a letter. That was levity for those of us who needed it. This pastoral letter is uh, one in which Paul writes to Titus. It's one of three pastoral letters. It's actually sandwiched chronologically between 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, so it's the second to the last letter that Brother Paul wrote to Pastor Titus. We're going to delve in what seems to be just a bit academic this morning, but not to lose heart. We will be ministered to through these chapters as Paul writes to Titus and builds up the church. And I want to begin with just a brief quote by Martin Luther, as Martin Luther comments on what we should expect from Paul's delivery of a message In the book of Titus, Martin Luther says he, referring to Paul, is a true teacher, one who both teaches and exhorts. By his teaching, he sets down what is to be believed by faith, and by his exhortation, he sets down what is to be done. Thus, by doctrine, he builds up faith, and by exhortation, he builds up life. Apt words, are they not? We'll be looking at teaching and exhortation. We'll also be looking at uh, three E's. This morning we'll we'll come to see that the book of Titus focuses on a message of evangelism as well as exhortation and edification. That title seemed a bit long, so if you're taking notes, there's kind of a, a subtitle to this this morning, which is Grace, which produces godliness in the church. Grace, which produces godliness in the church. Before we delve into the, the deep theology that Paul presents to us in this message, we'll first go and, and do what responsible journalists do. And they'll ask the who, the what, the where, the when, and the why behind this letter. Letter is uh, from a compound Greek word, which is epistelen, which is to send news. This is Paul sending news to Titus, a pastor of Not one, but multiple congregations on the island of Crete. We'll look at a map of Crete in just a moment to get ourselves uh, grounded in understanding what's happening. But we understand that the author of this letter is Paul. He identifies himself in the very first verse. As we begin, I'll read the first five verses of, of Titus to get our bearings. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my, two, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town. As I directed you. So in our note taking, the the who, the what, the where, the when, and the why, Paul's writing this to Titus, and it's obviously an open letter. We come to understand that there were probably more than a hundred cities in the island of Crete, which is uh, one of the fifth largest islands of the Greek islands in the Mediterranean, and we can recognize that Paul is not just writing this as a closed letter to Titus, but it was meant to be circulated amongst the churches like the letters to the Corinthians. And so undoubtedly, many of the things that Paul says perhaps are already clear to Titus. Titus would have already had those understanding, but they're written for the edification and the exhortation of the church at wide as well as for the evangelization of those who had perhaps infiltrated or slipped into the church that needed to come to a saving understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The what? The what is is a theme that we'll see throughout this book as we study together and that is grace which produces godliness in the church. And I'll say this more than once, but it's grace that produces godliness. We saw in the, the book of Jude that Brother Sean read for us that there's a relationship between a saving grace and what that produces in us, godliness. If we have grace without godliness, we have antinomialism. We have a false understanding of grace, and it doesn't produce godliness. And if we try to have godliness with a right understanding of grace, then we've got dead legalism. We have to have both. And so precisely for this reason, we'll see this theme, grace which produces godliness, in the church, in the midst of a very ungodly society, as we'll see. Where? Well, it's written to Titus on the island of Crete. Verse 5 tells us pretty clearly, this is why I left you in Crete. The expression left you there is a bit interesting because the book of Acts, Scripture doesn't tell us when Paul first went to to Crete, to establish churches. It also gives us very little information about where Paul met Titus, but we can gather from context that Paul is writing to Titus. Titus is pastoring these churches on the island of Crete. And the last chapter of Titus, verse 3, starting at verse 12, tells us from where Paul is sending this letter. He says, Do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. We'll go to the map for just a moment. You should have uh, 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 the ability to see on the screen a map. This particular map includes homework for the young people. There's uh, two homework items this morning, since it will feel a bit more like Sunday school perhaps today than other Sundays. The young people can read Acts chapter 27. It's a fascinating story that accounts this route that Brother Paul is is, uh, shown taking here. This is uh, Paul's final trip to Rome as he's going to appeal to Caesar and ultimately give account for the gospel, for the hope that lies within him, and ultimately surrender his life for the cause of Christ. And the travel was happening during the winter months, and their intended route on going on the north side of the island of Crete was thwarted. A series of storms, peril that caused all of the belongings of the the ship owner to be thrown overseas, and for them to fear for their very lives. The wind drove them along the south side of Crete. They went through, and a number of cities are mentioned there, You're curious, there are cities mentioned in Crete like Fairhaven. Fairhaven's always an interesting one to me. There is a Christian nursing home in the town where I grew up called Fairhaven. It's supposed to be a safe harbor in troubled times. There's also the city of Phoenix, in case you're wondering, Arizona, not in Scripture, but Phoenix, Crete is. And we can see that Paul continues on, and those stormy waters result in that shipwreck that happens off the island of Malta. And ultimately, he makes his way to Rome. What we know here is that Paul sailed past Crete. It's very likely that Titus was on shore and Paul could see out the window of his ship those places where Titus had been used by God to establish churches. So that's a bit of the geography. We'll understand more of the cultural context of Crete in just a bit. Then we need to understand why. Why is Paul writing this letter? Paul is writing this letter to um, evangelize, to proclaim the gospel with clarity, also to exhort the church and edify the church and place a a bit of an endorsement on the struggling ministry of Titus the pastor. So that's a bit of our who, what, where, when, and why. Let's delve a bit more into the who. Who's Titus? So I have a few different scriptures for us to to look at together that will help us understand a, a bit from scripture who Titus is. First of all, Galatians 2, verses 1 through 3 give us a little bit of an insight Into this man. Paul writes, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So we know that Titus was a traveling companion of Paul. It says, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised though he was a Greek. So this is interesting trivia about Titus. Not sure any of us were really wondering if he'd been circumcised or not, but yet this is very important because the purpose of the letter that Paul writes to Titus is to address Judaizers who were bringing up this topic of circumcision in the church. And also it's really noteworthy to know that Titus himself was a Greek, a product of, of Paul's ministry in preaching the gospel to those Gentiles. Also, if we go to the familiar book of 2 Corinthians, there are a number of mentions of Titus that will help us understand a bit of who he was and Paul's tender heart towards him. Chapter 7, it says, But even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts a downcast, comforted us by the t- coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. This Titus is a, is a bit like Barnabas, right? He's an encourager to Paul, he's bringing news of comfort and refreshment to the apostle. Verse 13, we see again. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Naturally an encourager. Chapter 8, we see that Titus was used by God in putting together a collection to take funds to the needy in the, the churches of Jerusalem. And he was used by God as an instrument of that. But perhaps for me, one of the most insightful verses to understand who Titus was, as we begin looking at this letter to him is what we see in verse 23 of chapter eight, second Corinthians 8:23. It says, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. What an amazing credential. Paul doesn't consider him a, a junior pastor or a, an, a, a second class teacher of the gospel, but he says, he's my partner and my fellow worker for your benefit. We also see in 2 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, that Paul mentions Titus traveling to a place called Dalmatia. If you're curious about Dalmatia, it is in fact where Dalmatians come from. It is also part of what is modern-day Croatia on the western side, uh, the western portion of, of Asia Minor. And so we know that Titus was used by God to go from place to place, carrying out the gospel much in the same way that Paul did. That said... Titus likely died pastoring churches. Um, Some historians believe that he lived well into his 90s and spent the the rest of his natural life preaching the gospel, establishing churches and strengthening churches in maybe as many as 100 cities on the island of Crete. But perhaps the most telling thing that we can identify about Titus is what we see in verse 4 of chapter 1 of Titus. Paul describes Titus as my true child, In a common faith. This is an important distinction because we see the same terminology used for Brother Timothy, the young pastor. Paul was likely instrumental as a spiritual father, proclaiming the gospel to Titus in a way that his eyes were opened and he came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. So these are some things that we need to keep in mind about Titus. He was Greek. He was a, a well-versed pastor. He'd been used in collecting offerings and going from place to place and proclaiming the gospel and establishing churches. And we can piece together in looking at this letter that Paul is not writing this letter to Titus because of any deficiency in Titus's life, but rather for the benefit of those others who would be reading and reviewing that epistle, which includes us here today by the grace of God. Delving just a bit further into the who of this letter, we know that Paul identifies himself right away. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, these two terminologies that are used are important for us to understand because, as I said, the theme is a grace that produces godliness in the church. Grace that produces godliness. And so Paul uses terms that clearly identify this grace. This grace that has placed him in the ministry. Paul could have began with, I, Paul, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, one of those super apostles. I go without mentioning myself, right? But Paul begins with this, I'm a servant. The Greek word doulos, a bond slave, a servant. And he uses that terminology to show the grace by which he had been given that charge. You know by now that Alistair Begg is one of my uh, favorite go-to preachers and Alistair Begg's sermon, which was the intro to the intro on Titus, he brings up a very interesting distinctive that I think is important for us as a church body to recognize. And that is that Paul employs some of the same terminologies here that were used to describe Moses in Joshua chapter 1. If you would turn with me to Joshua chapter 1, we'll just do a quick survey as we we look at the ways in which God describes Moses. Moses. Verse 1 says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. And later on in the chapter, in verse 7 of Joshua 1, he says, Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Skipping down to verse 13. Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded to you. You see, Paul had a a grace-filled understanding of the charge that had been given to him supernaturally by God. Paul's encounter with Jesus Christ was on the road to Damascus when he was brought into contact with the living Savior. Moses' calling, also by the grace of God, was no less supernatural as he encountered God in the form of a burning bush. God said to him, Take off your sandals. The place that you're standing is holy. See, these men, like many other men, A long line of faithful men have been given their charge as servants of God through the grace of God himself, not of their own merits, but of his. It's also worth mentioning that in the last chapter of Joshua, chapter 24, we see that Joshua himself in verse 29 is described in the same way. Look what it says, and after all these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. This notion of of service to the Lord, God graciously appointing a servant for a time and a place, is a theme throughout Scripture. And Paul, as he writes to Timothy and to Titus, is seeing this same thing. He's passing a baton to Titus, who will continue to faithfully preach God's word. A servant. The second word that Paul uses to describe himself in Titus chapter 1 is that of an apostle. He says, Paul, a servant of God. It's worth mentioning too, by the way, that when he says a servant of God, the word he's using there is the old, the old covenant name Yahweh. He's identifying himself to those who may have been reading the letter that were from a Jewish background. And he says, Paul, a bondservant of Yahweh, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle is very similar to the one that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, where he identifies himself as an ambassador. He says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And the message, of course, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Paul uses these grace-filled terms to point out the fact that he's nothing except that which God in grace has appointed him to be, a messenger, an apostle, an ambassador. In the days of Rome, of course, we know that a messenger would deliver the terms of surrender of the Roman Empire. And those terms of surrender are my terms or my terms. Paul had no liberty to change or alter the message. He had no liberty to determine even where he delivered the message. In fact, we can see throughout Paul's letters that there were times that he aspired to go to one city or he wanted to go to another city and God did not grant that. In fact, it would even seem that Paul may have desired to be with Titus on the island of Crete. But as God appointed it, the servant and the apostle that was there is Titus. And so Paul writes these words. Continuing to to show in this first verse how Grace, which produces godliness, is the theme. The other word that Paul uses that's really important for us to understand is elect. Right? Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. See, this this notion of elect is really important for Titus and the churches in Crete to understand. It would have resounded of Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God explains to Old Covenant Israel, You weren't chosen because you were the most numerous. You weren't chosen because you were so obedient. You were chosen because of grace. And this grace that Paul well understood produced in him godliness. And that's why Paul says, For the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, with God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested. In His Word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. There's an interesting way that God that God is described in this opening preamble to the letter that Paul writes to Titus, and it's important that we understand a few things culturally. You see, Crete, being an island of of uh, Greek providence, was also very important in mythology of the time. Well, it doesn't seem worthwhile to spend much time talking about Greek mythology, which is invention of men. It is really important to understand how that cultural distinctive shaped the day. The head of the Greek and the Roman pantheon was Zeus. Zeus was the father of all of the other gods. How he became the father of other gods is a bit sketchy, according to their mythology. We should know that this Zeus was a a philandering god that would use techniques to seduce other gods. One of his illegitimate children is Apollos, who's actually uh, the namesake of an apostle that we find in Paul's final greeting of the letter. He talks about Apollos. Apollos is one of Zeus's offsprings. But curiously enough, there was a belief in that day that Zeus had a birthplace, which was on the island of Crete, and that also Zeus died and was buried in Greece. A little bit peculiar to have a God who's not eternal, wouldn't you think? Furthermore, there is a belief that Zeus went to go seduce a particular goddess and when unable to do so, took on the form of her husband in order to successfully seduce her. So this is a God who dies and a God who lies. That's really important when you look at how Paul introduces this letter. Look what it says again in that light. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life eternal which god who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time god manifested in his word through the preaching with which i have been entrusted by the command of god our savior god who never lies the hope of eternal life a grace which produces godliness when not even your God is godly, that would seem to leave you without hope. But Paul writes, full of this truth of the gospel. And we'll come back a little bit in just a moment to to look at how Paul describes this God in greater detail. But it's important for you to understand the the three kind of E's that we're going to see throughout the book of Titus. We'll watch for these. We're going to watch for evangelism. We're going to watch for exhortation. And we're going to watch for edification. For the sake of elect, Titus chapter 11, sorry, Ch- Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 is the grown-up homework. Everyone's waiting for their homework, right? So I'm going to encourage you to, to join me in memorizing this particular passage, which is so much of the gospel encapsulated in a simple way. These three verses... Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. By all people, he means Greeks and Jews, both of which comprise the Cretan churches. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great god and savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works there's the gospel explained with such clarity paul does it several times in the book of titus but this one to me is worth writing on our hearts meditating on in our minds as we go through this week right salvation Renounce ungodliness. Hope waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Evangelism. There's a, a quote that I want to share with you from um, John MacArthur's commentary as it pertains to evangelism. And I think this is very important because in reform circles, we often have a bit of a misunderstanding of evangelism. And MacArthur pulls this out in a, in a beautiful way explaining what it is that that Paul does over and over again, and what Titus does over and over again, and, and in fact, what we do here over and over again. John MacArthur says, The duty of evangelism can be summarized as the preaching of the gospel clearly, because of which the Holy Spirit will sovereignly and miraculously cause the elect to believe and be saved. That is the priority ministry of all who are servants of God and messengers of Jesus Christ. That's it right there. Preach it clearly so the Holy Spirit will sovereignly and miraculously cause the elect to believe and be saved. That's a, a principal purpose of all of Scripture, of all of the gospel, and certainly was on Paul's heart. The second thing that we'll see with frequency throughout this letter is the theme of, of exhortation. Now, exhortation, if you're not familiar with the word, is the idea of persuading so that a behavior might be changed. Coming out with a clear statement so that a behavior might be changed. Titus 2 verse 15 is one simple example, although there are many here. After that passage that we just looked at, Paul says, Declare these things. This is what you're supposed to do, Titus. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. That's an exhortation. Curiously enough, there's also in the book of Titus, uh, another E that kind of goes along with exhortation. And that is, um, trying to come up with another E, the idea of of maybe expulsion, right? There's stuff that has infiltrated the church in Crete that ought not be there. That's a difficult thing. It's scarce in the contemporary church. But look, this happens in a number of different places, right? Chapter 1, verse 13. He says, Of the Cretans, who are known for being prone to a certain pattern of sin, which we'll look at more next week. Paul says, this testimony of them is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Rebuke them sharply. And with the the idea of kicking them out, look what he says in chapter 3. Verse 9, it says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. And as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self condemned. Paul's giving Titus some pretty clear authorization on what needs to happen when false teachers, when troublemakers infiltrate the church. That's part of his message of exhortation, part of the purpose for which Paul writes this letter. The third, fourth, depending on how you look at it, this idea of, of edification is important. Being built up. I see this most clearly in, in verse 5, which is kind of the tail end of our introductory text this morning. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul desired that they would be built up and have a, a biblical structure. Next week, we'll delve in greater depth into what are the qualifications for biblical leadership. This last week, our, our church has felt great attack. It's one thing to have an elder who's temporarily down with health complications, it's entirely another one to have an elder who's permanently down with spiritual complications. And for that reason, understanding how God has designed the plurality of leadership, how God has designed biblical structure for the church, is important. So we'll delve into that more, but that's part of this idea, the spirit with which Paul desires to edify the church. Keep in mind I said to edify the church, right? This is not just edifying Titus. This is an open letter. And it's important for us to understand when we come into contact with the scripture that while the words may speak very poignantly and very personally to us, these are not individual letters. I love the fact that um, while I am not a Greek scholar, nor do I um, know that I have the ability to be one, I can read my Bible in Spanish. And I love the fact that Paul says uh, in, in the Spanish translation, ustedes, right? You all. It's not just you, it's you all. And so when we look at this message of edification, it's not just out of Paul's love for Titus, his true child in the faith, but it's also his love for all of those who are elect, those who are saints in Crete. So we'll keep that in mind. Evangelism, exhortation, and edification. Those are themes that go along with this notion of grace, which produces godliness in the church. At the risk of delving into some areas that, admittedly, I still need to study more myself, I I do want to share with you something that's really key about the doctrine that Paul brings us in this letter. The letter isn't just about evangelism or edification or exhortation. It's also about exalting Christ and making clear the Christology, who Jesus is. So, it's noteworthy how Paul explains to these Cretan believers, some of whom may have been new believers, who God is. Look with me at verse 4 of Titus chapter 1. He says, and at the proper time manifested in his word. This is probably translated wrong. Manifested his word. Word. Logos. Right? Jesus. He manifested Jesus. He manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of whom? God, our Savior. Now that, for me, comes out just a bit awkward. We're used to saying our our Savior, Jesus Christ. But to say God, our Savior, seems a bit peculiar. And so in doing some research it turns out that aside from the text that Sean read that we'll close with today as our benediction, the only place that we find the term God, our Savior, is in the pastoral letters. 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul begins in, in a similar fashion. If you would go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Jesus Christ, our hope. God our Savior, Jesus Christ, our hope. And going back to the the book of Titus, we need to observe that this pattern happens a couple of different times. Why? Well, for one, there's this concept that Paul is wanting to express of God's eternality. God is not a God who has a, a date of birth or a date of death. He is eternal. And likewise, this God, while he is the father of those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And while he is the the father of the God-man, God incarnate, it's not like Jesus is just another divine offspring like Zeus had, right? So he's careful to talk about this epiphany, this appearing of Christ. Look at that again. At the proper time, manifested his word, manifested Jesus. We'll also see later on that he uses the word, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. There's this concept that at the, just the right time, God, our Savior, appeared. Again, Brother Alistair points out that, that Paul uses a, a bit of imagery of a point in time. He says, you know, at the proper time, God manifested his word. At just the right po- point in human history, God the Savior, the architect of our salvation, sends God the Son the means by which we have that salvation, Is it true that God is our Savior? Yes. Is it true that Jesus is our Savior? Yes. Is it true that God and Jesus are the same? Yes. We'll see that in a minute. We get some Trinitarian doctrine from Brother Paul here. But look again at that expression, God our Savior. It happens three times in the book of Titus. And each time Paul does this, he accompanies it with just a little bit of clarification, right? So look again, verse 3. And at the proper time, Manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Right? So he adds that qualifier. Then again, let's go to verse uh, chapter 2, verse 10. I'll start at verse 9 so we've got the whole context. It says, Bondservants are to be submissive to their masters, to their own masters in everything. They are to be well pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And then look, immediately coupled with that, this next verse, which is our memory verse. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. And yet a third time, we get to see this pattern again. Titus chapter 3 verse 4 It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we may become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see that verse? there's Trinitarian theology right there. We get God, our Savior, he appeared. And then we get the washing and the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And then we get who poured that out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So to the Christians who had any misunderstanding of, is this God, the God of, of Judaism? Is this some mix with Greek mythology? No, this is clearly Paul laying out for us our eternal God's perfect plan, a triune God for sending the God-man incarnate at just the right time to save sinners, to wash and renew us through his Holy Spirit. There are some who argue the word Trinity never appears in the Bible. If you ever have that argument with somebody, please, here it is right here. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with clarity. But that doctrine's just doctrine unless it's coupled with what we know. And that is doctrine builds up faith and the exhortation of that builds up life, how we live life. Grace ought to produce godliness. It ought to produce godliness in the life of the believer individually and it ought to produce godliness in the life of the church. And this morning... As a church family, we come to Scripture, and we need to know how to live. We need not only the truth of who Jesus is, but we also need to know how this affects our daily life. Coming into contact with God's Word for 60, 90 minutes a week is insufficient. Coming into daily contact with God's Word is necessary. The medical treatment that we need. And why? because that ought to produce in us a godliness. So as we we look at Titus in the coming weeks, may we focus increasingly on the person of Jesus Christ, what he did for us, and how our response to the grace that he's poured out on us is not us that we should boast. It's not our knowledge. It's not our goodness. It's not our qualifications. It's Christ in us. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent, and profitable for people. We need the gospel. We need the gospel desperately. We're reminded in times such as this, that we're dependent on his grace and on his mercy. May the next three weeks of, of our church life be focused with us crying out to the Lord, depending on the Lord, and resting in the great and precious promises of the gospel. These words that Paul wrote to Titus 2,000 years ago are no less certain, no less concrete, no more unwavering for us today. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the eternal nature of your word. We thank you that, as we'll see, the society in, in ancient Crete was one of godlessness the church was under attack from without and within and that those who you called to be as servants and, and apostles were often discouraged. But yet, God, we see that none of that has changed and that your word prepares us for those things. We just pray that, that as we go through the challenges of the, the hours and the days ahead, Lord God, that we would cry out to you, that we would rest in your great and pro- precious promises, the chief of which being you came, at just the right time, gave of yourself for us to purchase us as your possession so that we would be zealous for doing good works. We pray that you would work into us a gospel transformation so that people can see in our lives grace and people can see in our lives godliness for your glory, for the good of your people, and for the salvation of those who have not yet responded to the invitation of salvation. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.